Welcome to today's episode. Hello. You know, uh, late last year, something happened to me that made me question my sanity. It literally made me question my sanity. Like I was walking around for weeks, like wondering if my reality was broken. Okay. Um, I've had a couple of those. Yeah, and you probably remember this happening to me uh-huh. because this was like so troubling. <laughs> it it consumed my existence. Like I literally thought, like I thought I might blink out of existence. It was it was I I felt insane. Like a Derek Salinger over here, dude. I literally thought the walls of reality were like melting. I was like. I've 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 gone to a different dimension where the rules of the universe no longer apply. You know what happened to me? What happened? I lost the remote to the TV. <laughs> oh, I remember. You fucking remember. I remember. Dude, I was it was nighttime and I had the remote and uh, it was late. It was like two in the morning. And I turned the TV off, put it down, I went to bed, I came out the next day, the remote was gone. No big deal. Yeah. Looked under the couch. Wasn't there. Looked in the couch. Wasn't there. Looked under the cushions. It wasn't there. Uh, And at first I didn't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what? Oh, I was going to say, I think uh, your wife told me the running theory was that I stole it (laughs) for a little bit. That I took, I think it was like around when I went home for the holidays, right? I don't know, man. Like I checked every room (laughs) in the house. Uh... I just, it didn't make sense because you know a remote can only be in so many places. It can only be in so many places. And when you check those places, what do you do? And I started thinking like the, maybe the remote did leave the house. Maybe it fell into somebody's like pant leg and they walked yeah. out with it. <laughs> or maybe somebody came in in the middle of the night and took it. But all of these like crazy ideas started formulating in my mind. Like where the fuck could this remote be? And I would, I would wake up in the morning thinking about it and I would oh, dedicate man. a portion of my morning every day to researching the living room or wherever, scouring to find this remote and it started driving me so crazy. Eventually I broke down and I bought another remote. Okay. And I tried to move on with my life I tried to move on with my life now that I had the new remote, yeah. but I couldn't stop the same. I couldn't stop thinking about the old remote. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, okay, the remote's gone. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to think about it. It's fine. It's, it is what it is. It's gone. But if another thing disappears out of this house, I'm going to fucking lose it. <laughs> and I have a problem with like misplacing my shit. Uh, you know, I've gone, I, my wallet has like fallen out of my pocket before and like, I couldn't find my wallet and it's like in a plant in the front yard of the house because it's like, I misplace my shit sometimes. And I just kept thinking every time I would lose something, I'd be like, has this gone to the nether realm? Like the remote did. It sounds like me when I uh, deal with a breakup. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> like when you said like if I lose one more thing if I lose, I lose one, one more, more thing, thing <laughs> I'm gonna fucking I'm gonna become go, celibate I'm gonna go postal on this planet and it really it re- I mean I can't tell you how much the this missing remote tore me up it was like a Lovecraftian horror story like uh beyond the mountain of madness. I was lost in the sea of insanity because of this remote because it just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense. I'm still upset about it a little bit. I'm hoping there's a comic and phobia about this. I actually did because I'm writing a horror <laughs> did comic. You draft one? I actually wrote a comic about I knew it. Uh, you losing just everyday items and you don't notice them at first until they all start accumulating. And then you've realized like I've lost my whole life. Okay. Like that's terrifying. You know, you lose a little thing here, you lose a little thing there, but then you lose a medium sized thing and losing stuff sucks, dude. Yeah. And it's especially worse when you don't know what happened. Like 
You ever a dog run away? No. You ever have a pet just run away? I have. I've had a dog run away when I was a kid. Yeah. And I just never saw the dog again. And I don't even know what happened to the to the little to the little mongrel, you know? Did he did he have a happy life? What happened to him? I don't know. It's sad. That's sad. And and uh you know, I guess I accepted that one as a kid, but just loss, unexplained loss is like the worst, most devastating feeling out uh, there. I, there's a backpack, a camera backpack that I need for us to go on tour. Yeah. Uh, not on tour, sorry. Uh, for the the Tampa show, mm-hmm. and uh, I cannot find it. And it's literally, I've been going through these stages of grief where I'm like literally going insane trying to find it. So I feel your pain right now. Yeah. You know, you know how it goes. Well, today's story is about one such mysterious loss. And I'll tell you, it's way bigger than a TV remote control. And the TV remote control broke my brain. Uh-huh. So I can't even imagine what this family must have gone through. The mysterious disappearance of five children from the Sauter family. I think they were soldered. It's not funny. Oh. They disappeared. <laughs> they disappeared, bro. Check this out. Here's a quick rundown of it. Christmas Eve, 1945, a fire destroyed the Sauter residence in Fayetteville, West Virginia. At the time, it was occupied by George, Papa George Sauter, his wife, Jenny, and nine of their 10 children, which back in the day, you know, if you didn't have like at least eight kids, you, you weren't doing it right. So... They had 10 kids. Can you imagine? Like, nope. 10 kids. Yeesh. Ooh. Yikes. Why? I mean, uh, you just like having uh, sexual intercourse. I guess so. But nine? What you could live it like? No, no, no. They had 10. 10? But only nine of them were still at home. What's that fucking Mickey cartoon where he's like cutting the, the one bean in, in like little, little. The Sorcerer's <laughs> Apprentice? Yeah, yeah. Like, I feel like that's what your, their dinners are like. Oh, uh, no. The one where they're really poor. Yeah, they have like, to. Yeah, they got to they gotta share one bean amongst <laughs> yeah. themselves. That's what happens when you have 10 kids. Well. Sharing beans. During the fire, George and Jenny and four of the nine children escaped. Oh. But the bodies of the other five children were never discovered. Oh, God. Never discovered. Their remains were never discovered. And the surviving Sauter family believed for the rest of their lives Uh that the five missing children had survived. And it has led to many conspiracy theories. Okay. Um, and it's the subject of today's story. Welcome to Mega Strange, everybody. The cold open. The cold open, yeah. Now, uh, of course, the family didn't want to believe in conspiracy theories. No, I mean, they wanted to have, you know, closure. They wanted to be yeah. at peace. It's hard with, with with deep loss like that. Like you almost want to believe something like that, uh, as opposed to like what you know. If you lose five children, you're gonna want to believe that like aliens abducted them or something. Well, I don't think. I think the family actually wanted to just just okay. They wanted to bury their children. Yeah. And in fact, they did make a memorial to the children. Mm-hmm. But as time went on, so many weird things started happening or new things were uncovered that they slowly became convinced that the children were still alive. The children were not ghosts. We're not haunted. The children were still alive and they spent the rest of their lives looking for these kids. (laughs) This is a, this is a crazy sequel to the parent trap. (laughs) (laughs) The child trap. The child trap. So let me give you some backstory on who the Sauter family was to begin with. Uh, Before we Uh, even get to this mysterious disappearance. Yeah, do you have a joke? No, I was going to say, you know, people say like, you know, their last names are kind of what they do. So I assume they worked with dirt. They were solders. You're not. You're not far off. Actually, (laughs) were they they farmers? You're not. You're not far off. Actually. Yeah. 
So George Sauter was born um, under the name Giorgio Sadu. 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 <laughs> Sadu. And he was uh, from Tula, Sardinia, Italy. He was from Italy. Okay. And he was born in 1895. But he immigrated to the United States at the age of 13 uh, with an older brother. But interestingly enough, the older brother, the after, immediately after being admitted into Ellis Island, New York City, yep. the older brother decided to return to Italy, which is already a strange beginning to Wild. this guy's story. Why go through all that struggle just to turn around and go back? He didn't even see how good America was. He didn't even give America a chance. So George was left by himself. Um, and for the rest of his life, George, as he became, as he came to be known, uh, would not talk about why he had left Italy. It was this big secret that he never wanted to talk about. Okay. But he had some sort of deep-seated resentment towards Italy, as we all do. We do. That's <laughs> a joke. That's a joke. So George eventually uh, found work working on the railroads of Pennsylvania, carrying water and other supplies to the workers there. That's and a real job. That's a real man's that's job. That's a real man's job. I mean, he was born in 1895, so this would be like 1908 when he came to, oh, to wow. America. He's 13 years old, so within the next you know couple of years. I mean, this is like the teens. This is like 110 years ago, yeah. carrying water to the railroad, railroad workers. That's a tongue twister. Say that three times fast. <laughs> Go ahead. I don't, I don't even know what you said. <laughs> Railroad. No, no. Exactly. Railroad workers. Hey, you got it. I got it once. Oh. Uh, but after a few years, he became uh, a, uh, a driver. I think you going to say a drunk. A drunk. <laughs> uh, you know, working on the railroads, uh, you probably were yeah, a drunk. Every, everybody, everybody 100 years ago was a drunk, yeah, okay? Yeah. By today's standards, they were. Back then, it was normal. You'd you'd feed your kids like whiskey and stuff when yeah. they got sick. Uh, and cocaine. Yeah, it's funny because my mom uh, was born in the uh, '40s, and so she's pretty old. And she used to do like these weird like home remedies uh, to me. You know, when I was a kid, whenever I was sick, she's like, "Let me blow some tobacco smoke in your ear to help your earache." And I'm like, "What, mom? Yeah, apparently that works. Oh, or but you could use a. a it's like I don't know. It's, apparently it doesn't work. Who knows." <laughs> Uh, you know, old why your grandpa's remedies and yeah. stuff like that. Old people back in the olden days were fucked up. They're fucked up. They did like weird shit. But uh, yeah, he took work as a driver and eventually settled in uh, West Virginia. Right. So they settled nearby Fayetteville and uh, because Fayetteville had a large population of Italian immigrants. So it was it was oh. like the original Little Italy. Oh, you could get a good slice of za. You could get a nice glass of wine. You could talk about the motherland. Hell yeah. Because you were amongst your own people and they got you. They understood you. Uh, is West Virginia where Mountain Dew is from? West okay. Virginia. Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew. <laughs> Sorry. Take me home. Drinking so Uh, Sorry. I'm, I've drank a lot of coffee today. Yeah, I'm, I just I'm a little hyped a up. Ton. I'm like this mix of like high energy, low energy right now. That's what makes up my whole ball of charisma. That's what's going that on. That is here. your character trait. That's like your D and D character trait. Like you have like high, uh, like storytelling ability, and then also like you're also really sleepy. Like at the same high time. storytelling ability, but low attention span. Yeah, yeah. There I'm go. not gonna listen to you talk. You're gonna listen to me talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. That's uh, somebody else in the group. Oh, <clears throat> moving on. Sean. Oh yeah, Sean. We're gonna we're gonna drop uh, backhanded insults, <laughs> mega and, strange shoot interviews. Yeah, you know what? By the way, side note: we should do a shoot interview on this show. Johnny okay. and I. All right. Side note: before we get back to the solder story, we've been um, uh, speculating on doing a new type of show called Talking Strange. Yeah, where we just uh, shoot on everybody we know. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm tired of people out there delivering these false narratives. About Mega 64, yeah. about what goes on here. Listen, I've been here since the very beginning. This is my life. I'll tell you what really goes on here. I'll tell you what really fucking happened and all the drama with all the people yeah. who may or may not be here anymore. People who are still here, people who aren't here. I'll shoot on all of them. I'll shoot too, but like from an outsider perspective. 
Let us know if you uh, are looking forward to talking strange. Yeah, let us know in the comments if you want talking strange. So they moved to Fayetteville, uh, West Virginia, and they lived in a two-story timber frame house. And what's cool about people back in the day in the 40s is they would build their own house. Yeah. You ever look at a house from the 40s? It's either like a real big pile of shit or it's like a fucking castle. Oh, yeah. I mean, you either lucked out if, you're, if your dad was handy or not. Uh, me, myself, I would build a crappy like uh, domicile. It'd be like a little tiny shack. My family would be screwed if I had to build the house. That's going to be like a towel for a roof and like rocks for the floor. I'd build one of those dirt houses those dudes build on YouTube. Oh, yeah. With the, the water like slide, slide and the stuff. pool. Yeah, those guys are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So they lived in this two-story house. Now let's uh, fast forward to Christmas Eve, 1945, when this weird-ass story really kicks into gear. Has that happened on Christmas? This happened on Christmas Eve. Damn. 1945. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Santa Claus is over there in Europe fighting the Nazis. <laughs> you know, you're trying to uh, maintain the home front. Just give your kids a nice Christmas. And then this happens. You lose five of them. So they had nine, they had 10 kids. Yeah. One of them was actually fighting in World War II at the time. Okay. So he wasn't there. But the other nine were still at home. Marion, who was 19 years old, was the oldest daughter, and she'd been working at a dime store in downtown Fayetteville. She surprised her three younger sisters, Martha, Jenny Jr., and Betty, with new toys that she had bought for them as gifts. The young kids were so excited to get these gifts that they asked their mom if they could stay up late that night so they could play with their gifts on Christmas Eve and probably wait for Santa Claus. And I got right. their gifts before Christmas. Um, you know, you never you, you you're uh, do you ever celebrate Christmas? Uh, kind of. Uh, my on my dad's side of the family, his mom converted to Judaism, so she grew up with Christmas and she like didn't want to let it go. Question of the week. Do you get uh do you get gifts on Christmas Eve? This is a hot hotly debated topic in American culture. Yeah. My dad is a Christmas purist. Yeah. And he despises the idea of giving his child a gift before Christmas Day. Uh-huh. And my mom would always be like cuz she'd see I was so like anticipating like Christmas so <laughs> bad she'd be like you can open one gift on Christmas Eve like a little one. Yeah. And every year my dad would like pipe off like ah, that's not how christmas works <laughs> marge why are you letting him open a gift oh, god damn they would fight about so much stuff on christmas it was crazy we had a christmas tree and my dad liked to put a star on top of the tree and my mom liked to put a little, stupid little angel on top of the tree <laughs> and they would literally like fight about it for the month leading oh, up to christmas god. to the point where my mom kept a, a ongoing list year by year she's like compromise we'll switch off every year and she had a list of every year you know, like 1992, star, 1993, angel, 1994, star, 1995, angel, all the way up until their divorce. Damn. <laughs> maybe she sewed, maybe they sewed the seeds. If you can't agree on what's put on top of the Christmas tree, the relationship is not going to work out. This is why I have a Hanukkah bush. This is why you got to go with the bush. Yeah. No fighting. Only eight days of happiness. Exactly. I'm kidding. So Always fighting. The kids... Stayed up late on Christmas uh -huh. Eve playing with some toys. And at 10 p.m., Mama Jenny told them that they could stay up a little bit longer. But as long as the two oldest boys who were still awake, that would be 14-year-old Maurice and 9-year-old Lewis. Remember Lewis. 9-year-old Lewis, they had to put the cows in. They had to feed the chickens. Before going to bed themselves. Okay. So this was real farm life out there in Fayetteville, West Virginia. You know? Yeah. Christmas, you still, even on Christmas Eve, you got to put the cows in. You know, I guess you do. Somebody's got to put the cows in. Yeah, it's probably cold. Exactly. So Papa George, Giorgio, Papa George, and his two oldest boys, John and George Jr. <laughs> you love these names, huh? Yeah, John and George Jr. Who had spent the day working with dad, uh, went to sleep early. So it was just the youngest kids who were still awake. Yeah. After reminding the children of the remaining tour, uh, chores, Jenny took her youngest daughter, Sylvia, who was two years old, upstairs with her, and they went to bed together. A telephone rang at 12.30 a.m. An old-timey telephone? Yeah. Okay. You know, you got to like... Ring, 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 ring. I've always wanted to use those, like that one. Yeah. 
An old-timey telephone rang yeah. at 12.30 a.m. Damn. And Jenny woke and went downstairs to answer it. And on the other, li- on the other side of the line was a woman whose voice she did not recognize. And the woman was asking for a name that Jenny was not familiar with. And there was the sound of laughter and clinking glasses in the background. Jenny told the caller, I'm sorry, you've reached the wrong number. But she later recalled that the woman had, quote, a weird laugh. (laughs) A witch called. A witch called. The Christmas witch. The Christmas witch. Jenny hung up the phone and returned to bed. That was 1230 a.m. Okay. The phones were still working at 1230 a.m. Did the phones not work usually? Well, listen to the story. Okay. As she went to bed at 1230 a.m., she noticed that the lights were still on in the house and the curtains were not drawn. And those were two things that the children normally took care of when they stayed up later than their parents. Children usually turn the lights off and close the blinds, but on this night, they had not. They didn't turn the lights off and carry them home? No. Okay. No. Was that a reference to Blink-182? Yeah. So one of the children uh, named Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch, and Jenny saw that she was asleep, and she assumed that the other kids had gone back up to the attic where they usually slept. So she basically assumed, like, all the kids, you know, you got 10 kids, you got to stick them somewhere. The five youngest ones going to the attic. That's like in Home Alone when yeah. they make Kevin sleep <laughs> yeah. in the attic. Um, so she assumed that everything was okay, that the kids must have been sleeping. They just forgot to turn out the lights and they forgot to close uh, the curtains. So she closed the curtains. She turned out the lights and she returned to bed at 1230 a.m. But at 1 a.m., 30 minutes later, she was awoken again. And this time, she was awoken by the sound of an object hitting the roof with a loud bang and then a rolling noise. Santa. <laughs> Maybe it was Santa. <laughs> a loud object hit the roof with a bang and then a rolling noise. After hearing nothing further, she went back to sleep. After another half hour, she woke up again. This time it's 1.30 a.m. And this time she woke up because she was smelling smoke. When she got up this time, she found that the room that George used for an office was on fire uh, near the telephone line and the fuse box in this room. Oh, no. She woke up George, and he woke up his oldest sons, John and George Jr., and both parents and four of the children, Marion, Sylvia, John, and George Jr., all ran out of the house. They escaped the house. But the other five children didn't come out. And so the family frantically yelled upstairs, calling for the children. But they heard no response. They couldn't go up the stairs to the attic because the stairway was on fire. Oh, no. Uh, John Jr. told the police that he did go upstairs to the attic to tell his cho- uh, to tell his siblings to come out, but he later changed his story that he couldn't go upstairs, that he only called after them. So there's some debate about what happened in the events. Efforts to find aid and rescue the children were unexpectedly complicated. I mean, I assume because it's Christmas. Well, for one, the phone wasn't working. Oh. The phone didn't work. Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the Fayetteville Fire Department. A driver on a nearby road could see that the house was on fire, and so he called, he went, he drove to a nearby tavern, and he called for the fire department as well, but he was also unsuccessful, either because he couldn't reach the operator or because the wind, uh, the phone was broken. There's a lot of information that we don't have because mm. this was like, Rural, 1945, West Kentucky. West Virginia? West Virginia. West Virginia. You're right. Sorry. So eventually the fire department was alerted, either from the neighbors or the passing motorists. They were eventually able to contact the fire department. Um, But they had to wait for the fire firemen to arrive. And they couldn't wait because there were five kids in the house. So George, barefoot, like a badass, 
climbed the house. He climbed the outside wall of the house all the way up and he broke open a window leading to the attic. Uh, and he cut his arm in the process. John McClane shit. Yeah. There, uh, but he couldn't reach the window. He was able to like break it. Maybe he was like jumping and punching it or something. I'm not sure. But for whatever reason, he couldn't get inside. So him and his sons intended to use a ladder to access the attic and to rescue the other kids. But the ladder was not in its usual spot. The ladder was typically left resting up against the house. But on this night, it could not be found anywhere. Those fucking kids escaped. A water barrel could, that could have been used had frozen solid. No. It's just one accident after another. Yeah. Uh, then George tried to pull up some of his trucks because he was a professional driver. He was going to pull his trucks up to the side of the house so that he could climb the trucks to get into the attic. But the trucks wouldn't start despite having worked perfectly a day earlier. Uh, sometimes the cold will do that. Yeah, maybe. If, it, if the barrel was frozen. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Frustrated and out of options, the six family members who had escaped the house couldn't do anything. And they watched the house burn down and collapse over the next 45 minutes. They assumed that the remaining five children had perished in the blaze. That was their initial assumption. Yeah. The fire department was uh, low on manpower because World War II was happening and they didn't have a lot of guys. And I guess back then, the fire department was made up of local volunteers, residents of the town, so they would have to like phone each other. The chief of the fire department, F.J. Morris, couldn't even get uh, the fire truck going because he didn't know how to drive the fire truck. So he had to wait for somebody who knew how to drive the truck come so that they can make it out there. Perfect storm. The firefighters, one of whom was Jenny's brother, Mama Jenny, her brother, yeah. was a firefighter. They couldn't help them. And by the time they arrived, the house had already burned down. All that they could do was sift through the ashes, which they did at 10 a.m. the following day. Surprisingly, they didn't find any bones in the ashes. No bones. They didn't find any remains of anybody in the ashes. Uh, and it has been noted by modern fire professionals that the search they did was cursory at best. They basically looked around for like an hour and a half, two hours. Yeah. While the house was still smoldering. And they said like, yeah, there's nothing here. And then they like took off. Yeah, I think with modern technology, you'd be able to figure something out. Yeah, maybe. But this was 1945. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you got to go back to the old-timey days, how it was back then. Nevertheless, uh, the fire chief believed that the five unaccounted children for had died in the fire. Uh, and he suggested that the fire had been hot enough to burn their bodies completely, like cremate them. Okay. Not long after the fire, because this happened on Christmas, the Sodders began to try, try to rebuild their lives. Uh, but slowly they started to question all of the official findings about the fire. They wondered why, um, by the way, this had been ruled by the fire department to be an electrical fire. That okay. was the official ruling. But they wondered why, if it had been caused by an electrical problem, the family's Christmas lights had remained on throughout the the duration of the fire's early stages when the power should have gone out. Then they later found the ladder that had been missing. It had been tossed down an embankment 75 feet away from the house. This kid's fucking escaped, dude. You think so? Yeah, they started their fucking little kid life. They were like, we have too many brothers. <laughs> we need to fucking get out of here. I feel like people did shit like that in the, when was this, the 40s? Yeah. I feel like they just left and started new lives. People do that. The nine-year-old kid? Yeah. They're going to leave on Christmas Eve? Yeah, fucking, uh, yeah. They're going to set the house on fire when they go? Are you being serious? Yes. I feel like, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Because a new conspiracy theory has emerged. 
I think the kids escaped and they uh they probably i mean i have noticed on this show that you are uh, extremely suspicious yeah of and you often make wild accusations towards mm. uh completely innocent people including the potential victims of the stories themselves oh i'm not saying they're i mean they're bad people i was just saying like i could see uh, when you were a kid you never had like i'm gonna run away like you know that kind of mentality like oh i'm, I'm packing my bag and leaving no uh not like for real but you know like to spite your parents or or, or something like that. You never had that? No, where was I going to go? Oh, I would do that all the time when I was a kid. I'd be like, I'm leaving, and I'd make it to the end of the block and come back. And my mom would be like, uh, how far did you make it? Uh, but I could see like kids like thinking thinking that they could do that, and then they accidentally light the house on fire and be like, oh, God. <laughs> and then they have to... On Christmas? Yeah. Your sister brought you home some toys, and you were so excited to play with them. You asked your mom to stay up late, but really that was just like the cover for you to make your escape. Yeah, or they were like living the fucking virgin suicides life, and they wanted to go out. What's the virgin suicides life? Uh, Being trapped in the house. Uh, and then they have to... They want to like die. Where are you getting this? I don't know. And You ever saw that movie? I've seen the Virgin Suicide, yeah. but why do you think the Sodder children were banned from leaving the house? Uh, I'm just, I'm going off. <laughs> Let Fair me enough. cook, dude. Yeah, you're cooking, all right. Uh, hold on, I gotta find my place in the story. <laughs> you got me looking. You got me uh, doing Virgin Suicide fact checking here. It's okay, guys. I'll find my spot here. Check this out. Maybe this will counter your theories. Over okay. There. A telephone repairman informed the Sodders that the house's phone line had not been burned during the fire, as they had initially thought, but had been cut by someone who had been willing and able to climb 14 feet up the pole and reach away two feet in order to do so. Oh, are you getting... Oh, were these kids abducted? <laughs> Was I being insensitive there? Well, I mean, that that is one of the theories. Okay, fuck. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, somebody, the telephone company told the Sodders that somebody cut their phone line. I, in my head, I imagine them like going out and, and like starting a, like a vaudeville act. You know, these nine, these five children. A man who was neighbors with the Sodders uh, told them that he had seen a stranger on the property around the time that the fire was started. Uh... And he was stealing a block and tackle from the property. That's like the rope rigging that you use in a barn to lift like hay up into like the uh, higher parts of the barn. It's, yeah, yeah. It's to pull heavy things up high. He stole the block and oh, tackle. No. Uh, the man was arrested and he admitted to the theft. And he claimed to have been the one who cut the phone line, thinking that it was a power line but denied having anything to do with the fire. However, there are no existing records of who this suspect was. Uh, and people wonder why he would have wanted to cut any of the utility lines to the house while stealing the block and tackle. That's a question that has never been explained. This guy admitted like, yeah, I cut the phone lines, but I was trying to cut the power. Oh. And people were like, why? And he's like, well, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I figure that's just what you do when you when you steal stuff. You 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 fuck their house up too. You cut yeah. the power. But he says he didn't what burn it down. Shit. Uh, <clears throat> Jenny, the mom, also had trouble accepting the police chief's belief that all the traces of the children's bodies had been burned up completely in the fire because many of the household appliances were found in the ashes of the fire, still recognizable, along with some fragments of the tin roof. She contrasted the results of the fire uh, with newspaper stories of similar house fires that she had read around the same time. One of them in particular was a house fire that killed a family of seven, and skeletal remains were found for all of the victims in that fire. But there were no remains found of her children. This is interesting. Jenny, uh, Mama Jenny, burned piles of animal bones to see if they could ever be completely consumed. None of them ever were. Oh. She was never able to uh, burn animal bones to the point where they disappeared. An employee at a local crematorium contacted the family and told them that human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours, which was far longer and far hotter than the house fire could have been. 
The solder's truck failure to start was also considered because George believed that the trucks had been tampered with, perhaps by the same man who stole the block and tackle and cut the phone lines. And some people have even suggested that the wrong number call to the house with the woman's strange laugh was somehow connected to the fire. However, investigators were able to later locate the woman who had made that call, and she confirmed that had just been a wrong number. Oh, no. But let me give you some backstory. We're going to rewind, and maybe this will influence your theories over there about my, what really happened. Theory. Yeah, your game theory. Uh, in 1923, uh, the, the Sodders had their first of 10 children, and George's businesses, uh, his business was prospering to the point where he became one of the most respected middle-class, uh, the Sodders became one of the most respected middle-class families in the area, according to local officials. However, George had maintained strong opinions on many subjects and was not shy about expressing his strong opinions, sometimes alienating people. In particular, he fucking hated Benito Mussolini, the fascist dictator of Italy. (laughs) Well, a lot of people in the Italian immigrant community were were Mussolini supporters. Oh. And he often got into some strong, heated arguments with other members of the immigrant community. Um, By the time that Sylvia, the youngest daughter, was born... Their oldest son, Joe, had gone off to fight in World War II, as I had mentioned. And the following year after Joe left, Mussolini was executed. However, George continued to criticize the late dictator, and this left some hard feelings with some local Mussolini supporters. Particularly one who, in October of 1945, two months before the fire took place, Uh, was visiting. He was an insurance salesman and he got into an argument with George about Mussolini and this guy threatened him. He threatened George and said, your house will go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed because of your dirty remarks that you have been making about Mussolini. Uh, (laughs) That's what this guy told him two months before the house caught on fire. Uh, Banshees of Inishirin shit. Yeah. Uh, another visitor who was looking for work came to the house one day randomly and was walking around back behind the house and he saw a fuse box and he made a comment that that fuse box was going to cause a fire someday. And this was strange to George because George had just had the fuse box installed by the electrical company because they had just gotten one of those fancy new electric ovens, an electric stove. Hell yeah. And the electric company had assured him it was safe. And suddenly this stranger shows up telling him, yeah, that's going to cause a fire. (laughs) In the weeks before Christmas, George's oldest son also reported seeing a strange car parked along the main highway through his town. And its occupants always seemed to be watching the younger solder children as they went to and from school. So the oldest son thought that the kids were being spied on. That was all before the fire took place. Okay. The following spring after uh, the Christmas fire, the Sodders um, bulldozed over the house and they filled the plot with soil and they turned it into a memorial garden for the five children. However, further developments throughout 1946 started to reinforce the family's belief that the children might still be alive somewhere. Evidence soon emerged that the fire had not started from an electrical fire, but had been set deliberately. For example, the driver of a bus came forward saying that he drove by the house earlier that night and had witnessed people throwing balls of fire at the house. Remember how Jenny heard a bump and a roll in the night? You thought it was Santa Claus. Wasn't Santa Claus? A few months later, when the snow melted... One of the young girls of the family, Sylvia, found a small, hard, dark green rubber ball-like object in the brush nearby. And George, recalling what his wife had said about the loud thump and roll, believed that this rubber ball was something of a pineapple bomb 
or some sort of hand grenade or other incendiary device that had been used in combat. Okay. You know, like some World War II incendiary grenade. Yeah, yeah. The family later claimed, contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion, that the fire had started on the roof instead of George's office. But, of course, by this point, there was no way to prove that that could be true. Other witnesses came forward and claimed to have seen the missing solder children. One woman who had been watching the fire from the side of the road said she saw some of the solder kids peering out the windows of a passing car watching the house burn down. Oh, no. This is getting sadder and sadder. <laughs> Another woman who worked at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said she had served the five missing children breakfast the next morning and noted that there was the presence of a car in the parking lot with Florida license plates. The Sauter family hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley from a nearby town to look into the case. Tinsley found out that the insurance salesman who had threatened George over his anti-Mussolini statements had been a member of the coroner's jury that had ruled that the fire was an accident. So they did an, uh, uh, an official investigation, and then they presented the findings of this investigation to a jury to see what they decided, and the jury decided that it was an accidental fire. But one of the people on that jury was the guy who threatened to burn down the house. Sounded like a mob hit. That's what a lot of people think as well. <laughs> They also heard of rumors around Fayetteville that uh, the police chief, despite saying that he found no evidence of the, of the remains of the kids, had in fact, now this is very weird, the, the, the fire chief, F.J. Morris, had in fact found a heart, a heart that he packed into a metal box and secretly buried. Uh, the detective found this out because the police chief had apparently confessed this to a local minister who later confirmed it to Papa George. George and his detective, C.C. Tinsley, went to, the, went to the fire chief to confront him about this so-called heart that he had found okay. and buried in a tin box. Morris admitted to it. He's like, yeah, I, I did find a heart. I did bury it in a box. And he agreed to show them where the box was located. So he took them out to this plot and he dug up this metal box and he gave it to them. And inside was what seemed to be a heart, maybe. Okay. But they took it to a funeral, funeral director who uh, examined it and told them, this is not a heart. This is fresh beef liver. It's relatively fresh. This is not even old. And what's furthermore is this beef liver shows no signs of being exposed to any fire whatsoever. Let's just pause and recount this. The police chief told a minister that he found a heart at, uh -huh. the, at the site of the bear, at the site of the house, took the heart, put it in a tin box and buried it. Then when the investigator found this out from the minister and they went and confronted the police chief, he took them and showed them the box but it wasn't a heart. It was just a fresh piece of beef liver. This is just uh, literally just a big ruse. Yeah, I was about to say, it sounds like uh, the cop uh, got paid off to like add more evidence that the kids were perhaps burned. That's exactly what fire. happened. The, the fire chief later admitted that the box with liver indeed did not come from the fire originally. He supposedly placed it there in the hopes that the Sodders would find it and be satisfied that the missing children had really died in the fire. So he was planting. This is confirmed. He was the police. I'm sorry. I keep saying police chief. The fire chief was confirmed to have planted evidence to try to convince the family that their children had died. Okay. Despite the fact that there was no evidence that they could find. So George became obsessed with thinking that his children were still alive. And on one occasion, he saw a magazine photo of a group of ballet dancers from New York City, one of whom looked like his daughter Betty. 
So he drove all the way to this ballet school and he demanded to see the girl. Uh huh. But he was refused. Oh, no. Which kind of makes sense because at this point he could just be a crazed, traumatized father yeah. being like, I know you got my daughter in there. <laughs> and they're like, we don't know who you are. Please go away. Of course, in New York City, even back then, you got all kinds of crazy weirdos. Yeah. That's like, I bet. That's what New York City's famous for. I mean, just look at the cast of SNL. <laughs> oh, so funny. Got him. Wait, they're, they're funny or me? Oh, me. Yeah, you're funny. George also tried to get the uh, FBI involved in the investigation because he considered it to be a kidnapping, but the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, personally wrote him back and said, although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of a local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. If the local authorities request the bureau's assistance, he would, of course, direct agents to assist, but the Fayetteville Police and Fire Department refused to do so. And so the FBI declined to investigate the situation. In 1952, the family put up a billboard at the site of the burned house uh, with information and pictures of the kids telling the world that they believed their children to still be alive. And they offered a $5,000 reward, which they later doubled to $10,000, to anyone with information about the whereabouts of their missing children. Okay. This billboard stood until 1989 and became something of a local landmark uh, in, cool. in the area. People would drive by and see this billboard. It wasn't until uh, Mama Jenny passed away in 1989 that they finally took the withered and tattered billboard down. Do you have a photo of it or no? Uh, yeah, I can grab a photo of okay. it and we could pop it in right here. Isn't that a great photo? <laughs> Isn't that a great photo? George followed up leads in person and he would travel to any area where he could get a tip from. A woman in St. Louis, Missouri once claimed that Martha was being held in a convent there. A bar patron in Texas claimed to have overheard two people talking about making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia some years earlier. None of these tips proved to be significant. They were all just kind of petered out. George later heard that a relative of Jenny in Florida... Remember those Florida license plates? A relative living in Florida had children that looked similar to his. And he went down to investigate, and the relative had to prove that the children were his, his own, before George was satisfied. In 1967, George went to the Houston area to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the Sauter family saying that Lewis, nine-year-old Lewis, had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much drinks. She believed that Lewis and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere. However, George traveled down there with his now son-in-law, a man named Grover Paxton, but they were unable to speak with this woman. They did contact the police, though, and the police helped them find the two men that she had indicated, but these men denied being George's sons. Okay. But according to that son-in-law, Grover Paxton, he said that uh, that denial lingered in George's mind for the rest of his life. He was never sure if it could be believed or not. Okay, but then this gets really weird. One day in, uh, I believe this was 1967, later that same year, Mama Jenny found a letter addressed to her in her mailbox, and it was postmarked from the city of uh, Central City, Kentucky, and it had no return address. And inside was a picture of a young man, now in his 30s, with features that strongly resembled that of her missing son, Lewis, who would have been in his 30s at the time, if he survived. And on the back of this picture were the words, were these words written. It said, Lewis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, little boys, A90132 or 35. Maybe that's a postal code or zip code, but that's it. Lewis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, little boys, and then some weird numbers. Scary. 
The family hired another private detective to go to Central City to look into this letter. But that detective was never seen by the family ever again. He just vanished. He never, he never contacted them. They were unable to find him ever again. Damn. This picture, nonetheless, and we could put a picture, we could put the picture up as well. Put that right here. <laughs> nonetheless, they gave the family hope. And they added uh, this picture to the billboard outside their house. And they put an enlarged version of it over their fireplace. So they really lingered on this picture. George admitted to the Charleston Gazette late uh, the next year that the lack of information had been like hitting a rock wall. We can't go any further, he said. But he nevertheless vowed to continue. Time is running out for us, he admitted in another interview. But we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. George Sauter died in 1969, uh, just one year after making that, uh, those statements in that interview. But his wife, Jenny, and their surviving children, except for John, the, the oldest son, John, who never talked about that night of the fire, except to say that the family should accept what happened with their lives. But the rest of the family, other than John, continued to seek for answers to their questions about the missing children uh, for the rest of their remaining lives. After George's death, Jenny stayed in a family home, uh, put up fencing around it, and added some additional rooms, but she wore black for every day for the rest of her life to mourn her children. And she would tend the, the memorial garden that was built on the site of the former house. As I already mentioned, when she died in 1989, that's when they finally took the billboard down. But the surviving Sauter children, joined by their own children now, continued to publicize the case and investigate leads. And them, along with some older Fayetteville residents, have theorized. This is the leading theory amongst the old Fayettevillians that the Sicilian Mafia was trying to extract, extort money from George. And the children may have been taken by somebody who knew about the planned arson and didn't want to kill the kids. And so they abducted the kids and tried to kill the, the family members. That's the theory that the Sicilian okay. Mafia took them. Isn't the Sicilian Mafia the same part of, have we seen The Godfather? Aren't they Sicilian? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It is. yeah. So I was yeah. gonna say those fuckers had no problem trying to take out a kid. <laughs> Who did they take out? <laughs> or they're trying to kill uh what's his name in the beginning of two. I forget I don't know anyone all the characters. Oh, names. Vito. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, they tried to kill Vito back in Italy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh I don't know. I feel like the uh That's a movie. <laughs> You know, the American mobsters are like, you know, we don't mess with the kids. Yeah. And, and leave out the kids, leave out the wives. Okay. Men only when we do a, a family hit. Family hit. They also theorized that the kids were possibly taken back to Italy. And that possibly if the children had survived all those years and were aware that their parents and siblings were looking for them. This is what the family, the, the Sauter family believes. They think maybe the kids were avoiding them to, to, to stop further attacks from the mafia. Maybe they were protecting them by, okay. by never going back. Sylvia Sauter, the youngest of their surviving siblings, died in 2021, just two Recent. years ago. Yeah. yeah, recently. She was in the house the night of the fire, which she says is her earliest memory. She was two years old. I was the last one of the kids to leave home, she recalled in 2013. And she said her and her father would often stay up late talking about what might have happened. I experienced their grief for a long time, she said, and she believes that her siblings survived that night and she assisted with the efforts to find them and publicize the case. She spent her whole life looking for her siblings because this is her earliest memory. Uh, in 2006, Sylvia's daughter said, my mom prom promised my grandparents that she wouldn't let the story die, that she would do everything she could. Modern theories uh, have investigated this case, and a lot of people believe that the kids probably burned up in the fire. Um, 
Some people say that even though the fire didn't burn for very long, that the house was left to smolder all night long after it had collapsed. And even that the fire department, you know, because they only looked around for like an hour and a half, two hours, and didn't even really know what they were looking for, probably just didn't even find the bones if there were any remains. Maybe they just didn't look hard enough. But there is a general consensus that says there is enough genuine weirdness about this whole story that if someday it is learned that the children did not die in the fire, it would not be shocking. So what do you think about the Sodder kids? I'm still holding out hope that they started a vaudeville uh, act and they made on their own. This story actually received national attention in the 50s and 60s. Uh-huh. And the billboard became a landmark in West Virginia. I bet. You think the kids would would hear about this story and would never reach out to their parents? No, not at all. I think, uh, I do. <laughs> yeah, I think that they're gone, sadly. Uh, I even at the time, like, yeah, I think they would have reached out at some point. I don't know. It's very weird. And, uh, that is the story of the mysterious disappearance of the solder children. Uh, we've already shown the billboard and the picture of Lewis. So you can look for yourself. Do you think that the p- older picture of Lewis of this man is or has a resemblance to young little Lewis from the billboard. Let us know in the comments below. What do you think happened to the kids? Give us your own conspiracy theories. Johnny has come up with his conspiracy theory. The kids purposely left. They escaped using the ladder. They, yeah. they, they themselves threw the ladder uh, into the ditch, even though it, it is strange that the, the house's phone lines were cut. Yeah. I mean, let's review the weird facts. The house's phone lines were cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some sort of Hold on, did pot- they- potential incendiary grenade involved. Yeah. The fire chief planted evidence to convince them that the, the kids had died despite finding no evidence. The man who threatened to burn down the house was involved in the jury that decided that it was an accidental uh-huh. fire. And mysterious photos were mailed to the family claiming to be surviving members of the children almost 20 years after the fact. Did they find the phone lines cut? After the fire? Yeah. Okay, well, I, I, a fire could totally, you know, sever a phone line. No, the phone line was cut from the telephone pole. Oh, okay. It was not oh, cut in so the I house. Oh, the fire, okay. Yeah, it was severed at the telephone pole. Somebody climbed the telephone pole to cut it. The man who stole a, the, the items admitted to cutting the phone lines, mm-hmm. and he said that he was trying to cut the power lines. Mama Jenny, by the way, later said that if the power lines had been cut, her whole family would have died because yeah. they needed the lights to navigate their way out of the house during the okay. fire. Yeah, I partially think that the fire marshal thing was like, maybe this dude felt like he could give them some like ease because uh, they were probably going like, it sounds like the, the dad was going like crazy. And keep in mind, Papa George pissed off a lot of people yeah. with, his anti, with his anti-fascist comments. So people were like, what are you Antifa? We're going to get this guy. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's that's, there's so many loose ends that I understand why, uh, people would, you know, have theories and stuff. Yeah. It's a lot worse than losing a remote control on your couch. I'll tell you. Yeah. I was about to say the connection. The connection that is wild. (laughs) I'll tell you that when I lost that fucking control, I was about ready to go to Texas and see if anybody had my remote control. I thought we were doing a whole episode on your remote control. I was excited. (laughs) By the way, I later found the remote control. Yeah, you did. (laughs) I didn't steal it. (laughs) It it was in the couch. (laughs) But it was like, I have an automatic recliner at our house, and it it had somehow fallen in between the cracks of the couch, but then got lodged in a like secret Velcro pocket in the rear of the recliner. Oh, so only later when I had to like rewire the recliner that I peel open this Velcro pocket and the remote came falling out. And let me tell you sanity restored (laughs) dark souls, sanity restored. Exactly. Uh, and I hope that someday the solder family can have their own finding the remote control moment. <laughs> I don't think they're going to. <laughs>
I hope I hope I hope they can experience. <laughs> Didn't this, you say this, the last of them died? The same level of joy. Well, they got uh, descendants. That you know, somebody out there is still uh, kicking. Leave your theory in the comments below. And if you like this episode, be sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And you can follow us on social media on Instagram at Mega Strange Podcast. You can follow us on the fucked up version of Twitter at Mega Strange 666. Maybe we'll do a story about that. Let sure. us know if you want to hear about Talking Strange. We'll shoot on everybody. And I'm gonna shoot uh, so hard. Thank you for watching, everybody. We'll be back next week with another Strange Tales. Stay strange, everybody. See ya.